He came to break down these barriers and to make reconciliation possible. That's the heart of our message, of our passage today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. He himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. He alone has the power to make us both one. Jesus is our peace. Well, look with me in the text, if you have your Bible, starting in verse 14. And the first claim Paul makes here is this. What the world separates, Jesus can unite. If you look at verse 14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He himself is our peace, shalom, wholeness, right? He's the one who takes all the broken pieces and stitches them back together again. He was truly the Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9. You know, we only think, read that verse at Scripture, but it applies to the entirety of Jesus' mission here on earth. And as the Prince of Peace, Jesus brought an end to hostility both vertically between God and man and also, as we're going to see in our passage, horizontally as well, specifically between Jews and Gentiles. So that's what Paul means when he says here, he has made us both one, Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, united as one. But why is this such a big deal? You know, we talked a little bit last week about the tensions caused by circumcision, but the ethnic and religious differences ran so much deeper than just that. Paul talks here about a dividing wall of hostility separating Jews and Gentiles, and hostility is the right word for it. So we, uh, we read the Roman historian Tacitus says this about the Jews. It says, The Jews regard as profane all that we hold sacred. On the other hand, they permit all that we abhor. The customs of the Jews, they are base and abominable and owe their persistence to their depravity. Toward every other people, they feel only hate and enmity. They sit apart at meals, and they sleep apart, and among themselves, nothing is unlawful. Those who are converted to their ways follow the same practice. And the earliest lesson they receive is to despise the gods, to disown their country, and to regard their parents, children, and brothers as of little account. That's the Roman view of the Jewish people. Right? The, the, the Jewish way of life was clearly unique, separate, distinctive, noticeable. Generally speaking, they did not blend in. People were aware of their presence, aware of all the ways in which they stood apart, in which they were separate, which is exactly why the Greeks and the Romans hated them so much. And many Jews honestly felt similarly about the Gentiles. So in the book of Jubilees, which is not part of uh, our scriptures are part of the canon of scripture, but is nevertheless helpful for historical background information. We read this, separate yourselves from the Gentiles. Do not eat with them. Do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all their ways are contaminated and, <clears throat> excuse me, and despicable and abominable. So, Gentiles looked down on Jews for their, what they perceived to be morally repugnant behavior. And likewise, many Jews, 
not all of them, but many, looked down on the Gentiles for their idolatrous practices. There was even a literal wall that was erected in the temple precinct to separate Jews and Gentiles. So we have a picture of on the screen here. According to Josephus, it was only about four and a half feet tall. It wasn't like a giant thing, symbolic mostly, but at numerous places along this wall were inscriptions that said, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure, and whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. So you can see here, this is, this is the main temple here, and this is the court of Gentiles on the side here. The Gentiles were allowed in here, and then you can see this little wall going down the side here. They were not allowed to cross that wall, and they had these signs Basically saying, keep out on pain of death all along that wall. Now, this wall was probably on Paul's mind as he is writing to the Ephesians because he was arrested, and we read in Acts, right, on the charge of bringing a Gentile from Ephesus past that wall and into the inner part of the temple, right? And, and again, it was Jews from Asia, most likely Ephesus. It doesn't say that, but Jews from Asia, perhaps from Ephesus, that made this accusation and stirred up the riot against Paul that got him arrested, thrown in jail. He ends up in Rome, and now that's why he's writing this letter to the people of Ephesus. So this wall was a potent, visible symbol of the division and the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles at that time. But having said that, since this wall was still standing when Paul was writing to the Ephesians, in what sense did Jesus tear it down? Well, if you look at verse 15, the dividing wall that Paul is talking about here wasn't actually a physical wall at all. Paul is talking primarily about the law, about the law and all its ordinances and commandments, not just the sacrificial laws, right? Not just the cultural boundary markers, but the entire thing, the law as a way of keeping the covenant and securing access to God was rendered obsolete in Christ. And in so doing, Jesus removed any cultural, ethnic, or religious barriers between Jews and Gentiles. It didn't matter if the wall was still standing in Jerusalem because there were no literal or metaphorical barriers anymore for people wanting to worship God. The wall was irrelevant because the temple itself was no longer relevant. All believers now had direct and equal access to God in and through Jesus Christ. This would have been a shocking position for any Jew to take, let alone a Pharisee like Paul. The law governed every aspect of their lives. These ordinances were once described as being um, impregnable ramparts and walls of iron, keeping the Jewish people pure in body and soul. And yet that iron wall was ultimately, according to Jesus, only serving to keep uh, Jews and Gentiles both away from God and causing intense division between them in the process. And so, when Jesus died on the cross and was raised again, he perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law on our behalf. So that's what Paul means in verse 14, when he says, Christ broke down the wall in his flesh. It was in his death on the cross 
that the law as a way to be reconciled to God, as the law as a way to reach God was abolished and a new covenant was established with God's people, both Jew and Gentile alike. But what about the law then? Right? What, what, what does then apply? I mean, Paul himself is not short of commands to give the people. And later in Ephesians, he's going to quote from the Ten Commandments. Right? The law is still useful in many ways in our lives. Paul doesn't throw it out completely. But it's different now. So primarily, uh, it, the law is a reflection of God's character. We get a glimpse of who God is, what he values, how he thinks. The law becomes a map now for how we're to relate to God and to each other. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. Well, great, but how? How do I do that? We can find out by reading the law. Paul talked and told, just told the Ephesians to, to, to live out good works, right? What does that look like? The law guides the way for us. Third, uh, the law functions as a restraint on our sinful desires. Look, traffic laws can't stop us from speeding, but they can slow us down, right? And that's what the law does as well. It won't stop sin, but it can slow down and curb sin. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the law serves as a mirror or, or, or spotlight to reveal sin in our lives and to point us to the gospel. And it's in all of these ways then that the law can actually help to unite us as people, revealing the log in our own eye, leading us to repentance, encouraging humility, pushing us constantly towards Christ. As a covenant, it's been abolished in Christ and is no longer a legally binding document that new covenant Christians must keep in order to be saved and to be right with God. But as a guide, God works through his word to bring together what the world has separated. Well, the second claim Paul makes here is this. What the world breaks down, Jesus can rebuild. You know, I have never, probably the same for most of us in here, I don't think I've ever known a time where there has not been violence and strife and struggle in the Middle East. Right, especially in and around Israel. The cycles of violence just seem to be stuck on repeat over and over again. When I was in high school, I had a friend whose family were refugees from the fighting that was happening in Lebanon in the 1980s. I have no idea what side they were on or not on or whatever, but he told stories uh, when we were in high school of seeing people shooting at each other on the streets and how scary that was for him. And of course, right now, the violence seems to have gotten even worse, and a peaceful solution seems almost impossible to imagine. It's too hard, it's too unlikely, too improbable, too difficult to conceive of. And so when we read passages like this one, it's simple, maybe easier to sort of dismiss it or over-spiritualize it and think, well, this is just like churchy language to talk about Jesus bringing peace, because surely it's not going to happen here. In this situation, this is too far gone. And yet, in the middle of all the violence and bloodshed, God really does continue to work, bringing people together, bringing Palestinian Christians and Messianic Jews together as one in Christ, healing divisions, binding up old wounds, 
I listened to a testimony just this week of a, of a young Israeli Christian Arab man named Sharbel, whose family was forcibly removed from their land by Israeli settlers 70 years ago. And although a Christian, as a result, in his family, there was this deep-seated anger and hatred for the people of Israel and the Jews who had taken their land. And he says openly, I, I hated Jews. And he would persecute them and attack them whenever he could. But after God led him into a friendship with a Messianic Jew, his heart was changed completely, almost despite himself. It was incredible. And he now works and worships together with Messianic Jews, even though he himself is an Arab Christian. And he recognizes the solution to peace is, is not in him. It's not in a political process. It's in Christ alone. And so he says, when, when I recognize how much God has forgiven me, how can I not forgive those around me? That's the path to unity even in places like the West Bank, where he now frequently serves on mission. Stories like these are incredible examples to me of what Paul describes God has done in Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. We read, he abolished the law in his flesh in order that he might then create something new. One new man in place of the two. Whereas previously there had only been Jew and non-Jew, uh, Israel and non-Israel, God's people and not God's people. Now there was something different. And Gentiles, they, they didn't have to shed their identity and then become Jews in order to finally enter into God's presence. They could come just as they were. And at the same time, Jews did not have to become Gentiles, erasing their rich heritage and cutting off their connection to the past to come into God's presence. God took the two and made them into something new and special, something totally different than before. So what is this new man? Well, given the context in the rest of the letter of Ephesians, I think Paul is clearly talking here about the church. Not a human being, not, a, not about personal transformation, but corporate transformation. So the point of the story I shared a few moments about, uh, ago about Charbel is not so much about his own personal journey, as significant as that was, but to highlight the unity that Christ can bring about in his church a among people who are so different. Not erasing the differences, not pretending like the hurt and the pain and the problems are not there, but embracing them in light of the cross. Right? So Charbel is still very much an Arab Christian. That, that, that's who he is. Right? He doesn't need to become a Jew. He's never going to wear a yarmulke. He's never going to celebrate Passover. He's not going to circumcise his sons. Arabic is his heart language. But likewise, David, the Messianic Jew, who, doesn't, who, who, who helped pastor and mentor Charbel, he doesn't need to let go of his Jewish heritage and background and traditions. 
Hebrew is his heart language, and he'll continue to celebrate Sabbath and everything else that he grew up with, albeit now with a new orientation towards those traditions. But in Christ, the two of them can come together into something new and amazing, the church of Jesus Christ, loving God, loving others together as one. What Paul describes in Ephesians is is not uh, uniformity, it is unity, it's oneness. With the goal, Paul says here, of bringing about peace. And this is all in fulfillment of the promises we heard just before uh, from the sermon in uh, Isaiah chapter 56 of, of foreigners coming to the temple to worship God and receive his blessing, of enmity and strife being broken down and new life brought forth. As Isaiah says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just a house of prayer, but a house of prayer for all peoples. Using language that's almost identical in the Greek to the Great, uh, the, 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 uh, the great Commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28. Go uh, to all nations what he's talking about here. This vision from Isaiah is what Paul says has been accomplished now in Christ. The one new man created in Christ to bring about peace among all peoples. And here's the exciting thing. If, if, if Christ can do this for Jews and Gentiles, and if he can bring together Palestinian Christians and Messianic Jews, then that same power is more than enough to deal with the tension and the conflict and the division we're experiencing, not just in our country, out there, but right here in our own homes as well. We read in Psalm 133.1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in, in unity. And I'm here to say, based on our text this morning, it's not just pleasant, it is possible. Right? I remember working with a, a married, well, not a married couple, with a couple a long time ago at a previous church, not here, whose marriage had been destroyed by alcoholism and angry, abusive language, and finally by adultery. Totally wrecked. The divorce was bitter and acrimonious. Their three kids felt uh, betrayed, and, and their family was torn apart by the whole thing. But then something really incredible happened. Three years after the divorce, the, the husband entered uh, rehab, went into a recovery program recognizing his problem with alcohol, and he finally came to repentance and a true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And after that, he felt compelled to seek reconciliation with his wife, with his ex-wife. Now, the previous marriage had been so horrendously bad, so messy, so broken, that very few people thought this was going to go anywhere at all. But in Christ... Slowly and surely, God worked to bring them slowly back together. And it was a very bumpy road. (laughs) I sat with them through some very uncomfortable and difficult counseling sessions. But in the end, we were able 
to stand there and see them reunited, get remarried together in front of Christ. Now, even then, their kids were still highly dubious of this entire thing. Such was the heart and brokenness they had experienced. But it was an incredible moment, seven years after their initial divorce, to stand there and see them get remarried. Now, I know it doesn't always work out that way. But this is what Jesus has the power to do, to take the two and to make them one, to rebuild everything that sin and selfishness and despair and hopelessness breaks down, to bring peace and restoration and new life and and new hope, to rebuild what has been broken in and through the power of Jesus Christ. As we move forward in our text, Paul has one more claim he wants to make here. And that's that where sin has caused alienation, Christ brings reconciliation. Now, we've given many examples already of sort of interpersonal conflict that has been bridged in and through Christ. Right? And that is the main focus of this passage. But, of course, the most significant division we will ever experience in the world is the one that divides us from God. And so Paul doesn't leave without reminding his readers of this ultimate purpose in Christ's death. So if you look at verses 14 through 16 again, Jesus made us both one. He, by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, the, the law, abolishing the law, so that he might create in himself one new man out of the two, making peace. And now here's the critical part, Paul says, and might reconcile us both to God, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Reconciliation assumes hostility, right? It assumes suffering, struggle, separation. It assumes anger, heartache, and disagreement and difficulty. It assumes seemingly irreconcilable differences. That's the starting point. And although nobody likes to think this way, that actually is our default position before God, apart from the saving work of Christ. Separation. But we're not just separated sort of passively. Like the Bible makes it clear that before we were saved, we were actually actively hostile towards God. Easy to understand if you came to Christ later in life, you're born again as an adult or something. You remember that. Maybe as a child and you came to faith as a kid, it's hard to think, well, I I don't remember ever being hostile towards God. But the Bible is clear that, that without Jesus, even if we don't feel it, no one is righteous. Not a single person, Romans 3.10, whatever your age Whatever your life stage, wherever you live, whatever your upbringing. And again, I, I know we don't like to think of this, but the Bible is also clear that God's wrath is ready to be poured out on all those who stand apart from him. All right, the hostility Paul mentions is not just between man uh, and God, but between God and man. God isn't neutral towards sin and unrighteousness. Because he is holy, he hates Sin, right? Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. God sent the flood on the whole world, right? Saving just Noah and his sons, right? The Canaanites were killed for their idolatry and sin. The Israelites were killed for their idolatry 
and their sin and eventually sent into exile away from the temple and their country. Without Christ, God's wrath is a fearful sight to behold and a problem that can never be overcome by good deeds, good behavior, good intentions. But in Christ, Paul says, that work of reconciliation can now happen, right? Not just for Jewish believers, but for Gentile believers as well. So when Paul talks about being reconciled in one body, he's talking about Jewish and Gentile believers together as one body being reconciled now to God at the same time. That's the thrust of this entire chapter and indeed most of the book of Ephesians, right? Unity. That's why we named our sermon series, right? One Church in Christ, because in him we are both reconciled to each other and reconciled with God. And then this reconciliation now brings incredible blessings and responsibilities. So look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, Paul has already explained how Jesus is our peace, but here he shifts gears a little bit and he describes Jesus as preaching peace to those who are far off and those who are near. It's sort of like uh, uh, when it's time for dinner. Kids, you know, if, if you're the one who's lucky enough to be sitting at the kitchen table doing your homework, it's like, hey, dinner time, okay? Like, it's great. But then for everyone else in the house, you go to the bottom of the stairs, and you're like, it's dinner! You know, try and work, shout through the closed doors and the headphones and everything else, right? Those who are near and those who are far off. And that isn't that far off from the original context of this, this passage uh, Uh, Paul's quoting from Isaiah 57. Because there God speaks to Jews nearby, geographically in Jerusalem, and also proclaims peace to, to those Jews who are far off, geographically spread, dispersed around, uh, uh, away from their country. And he promises them a time of peace. Now Paul takes that verse and he reapplies it here in a new context God still speaks peace, but that peace is now extended both to Jews and to Gentiles. Equally, both groups needing Christ, both groups needing the gospel. It's the same message for everyone, everywhere, regardless of ethnic or religious backgrounds. Both groups gain access to the Father through one spirit, the same spirit. But how did Jesus preach peace in his ministry, right? When the majority of his ministry was very specifically directed towards his own people. And peace talks about the peace that was secured on his cross at the very end of his ministry. Well, Paul most likely has the ministry of the apostles in mind here as they took this good news of the gospel out into a broken and needy world. Jesus preached peace through Paul, through the apostles, through his disciples, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Taking, telling his disciples to take this good news to the world, to all the nations, all the people. And thus, although Paul doesn't make an explicit demand himself here on the Ephesians, 
I think it's reasonable to pause and ask if God's message of peace was preached by his disciples then, how does God want me? How does he want you to continue to preach peace to those around you now, today? Not, no, 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 peace as the world gives, right? No, but, but gospel peace, cross-centered peace, peace with God, peace with others bought by the blood of Christ. If reconciliation with God is the single most significant gift we can ever receive, then why are we not offering that gift to more people around us? Right, the stories of hope we hear from places like the Middle East and Northern Ireland, they're wonderful. But the people involved know that this is spiritual work that derives its power from God himself. Political solutions, economic solutions, they're powerless to bring true, lasting change. It takes a true and deep relationship with Christ to make that happen. So if we want to see peace and reconciliation in our homes and in our country, what are we doing to cultivate that new spiritual life in those closest to us? Well, I want to close this morning with a a story I heard from uh, my uncle, Kari's uncle, uh, 40 years ago. Chuck Colson visited Belfast, where I showed you these, these peace walls, right? Forty years ago, Chuck Colson visited Belfast. And he saw firsthand the deep divisions caused by all the fighting I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. And he saw the beginning of the construction of these peace walls and these barriers and the barbed wire and everything else. He saw also, though, the real work of reconciliation that was happening even in the middle of that violence, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is Chuck Colson. He said this, When I arrived at the prison I was visiting, I met a man named Lee McCloskey, who for much of his violent young life had been a member of the Irish National Liberation Army. That's a Marxist offshoot of the IRA. He was convicted of armed hijacking and robbery, And Liam was serving a 10-year sentence at the prison, which was called Maze. Now, after surviving a hunger strike that lasted 55 days, Liam eventually turned his heart towards Christ. And as a result of that, he resigned from the Irish National Liberation Army, and he determined instead to become a force for reconciliation. His first effort was to join Protestant prisoners in the prison dining room, breaking the self-imposed segregation between Catholics and Protestants. And while he was there, Liam met this man named Jimmy Gibson, who was a Protestant paramilitary member serving time for attempted murder, attempted murder of Catholics like Liam. And he couldn't wait to go after more Catholic paramilitaries when he got out of prison but partly because of his inner turmoil and largely, honestly, through Liam's personal interaction and influence, Jimmy instead gave his life to Christ and joined a Bible study with those who had once been sworn enemies. Then when Chuck Colson returned to Belfast in 1983, he arranged for a meeting with, uh, uh, with a whole lot of people from Prison Fellowship and the community, and he invited Liam and Jimmy to come with 
And he said, their presence more than anything else evidenced the reconciling power of the gospel. That evening, each told how he had come to know Christ. Liam concluded by putting his thin arm around Jimmy's muscular shoulders and saying, my hope is to believe that God is changing the hearts of men like myself and Jimmy. That's the only hope I have for peace in Northern Ireland. Before, if I had seen Jimmy on the streets, I would have shot him dead. But now he's my brother in Christ, and I would die for him. Oh, the people at the meeting, they rose up to their feet in tears, and they're shouting and cheering. And it was this moment of great hope, a joyful wedge, Colson says, thrust into 40 years of religious hate and bitterness. Only Jesus has the power to break the kind of generational hatred that has gripped cities like Belfast for decades. Only Jesus. He is the only explanation for something so dramatic. And the story of Liam and and Jimmy from 40 years ago has been repeated in hundreds of thousands of similar circumstances, not just in Northern Ireland, but but, but in Rwanda, in Serbia, in Croatia, in, in Poland, in Ukraine, in Germany, in America, and other countries all across the world. These stories rarely, if ever, make the news. The, 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 the barriers are still standing in Belfast, right? Peace, in the global sense of the word, has not been achieved. But person by person, individual by individual, family by family, Jesus is working to bring peace where peace seems almost impossible, where the division seems far too deep, the difference is too intractable. Because he himself is our peace. He alone has the power to make the two one. And he wants to work that same kind of miracle in your homes, in your lives, in your families as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for these testimonies of of men and women who have turn to you in repentance and faith and empowered by your Holy Spirit have been able to look at their worst enemies through the light of the cross and be able to extend forgiveness and to seek peace. And Lord, as we hear these stories and we we reflect on the work that you have done in reconciling us to yourself, We pray for that same life-changing power to be at work in our lives today, in the broken relationships all around us. That peace cannot come through our own efforts or good intentions. It can only come as your Holy Spirit works in our hearts to change lives from the inside out And Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to step into these messes in the power of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in humility and with patience and with grace and with love, taking those first baby steps towards reconciliation, trusting that you have the power to bring peace 
where we can only see conflict and pain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.